Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterland, and I'm your host. And I'm also the founder of Novus Mindful Life Institute Family Counseling and Recovery Center in Long Beach, California. If you or someone you know is struggling with any of life's difficulties, please reach out for help. You can find out more information about us at theaddictedmind.com forward slash help. So welcome to episode 41 my guest today is Timothy Winnicky, and he is going to talk about specifically working with veterans and first responders. What's really cool about our conversation is we just kind of dig in to some of the issues that are faced by this population of people who are kind of on the front lines of helping people and dealing with the crisis situations in our community and around the world and kind of the issues that that come with that and especially even at times when their veterans are leaving the service and the issues they face around that as well of just getting out of the military and kind of reintegrating into civilian life so we have a great conversation i think you guys will really in, enjoy it also, once again, if you're enjoying the podcast, please rate and review us in iTunes. That really does help. I love to love to see that. I love to see that people are appreciating the show and, and, and what's going on. So so thank you for so much for the people who have done that. And um, if that fits for you, I'd encourage you to do it. It really brings up our exposure and, and other people can find the show and, and get this valuable information. So let's go ahead and start this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My guest today is Timothy Winnicky, and he is going to talk about what I think is a very important topic, is working with veterans and first responders and dealing with issues around that and also when they turn to addiction as a way to cope. So we're going to talk about all of those issues and what's going on in that area. So I'm very excited. Timothy, you want to introduce yourself and, and tell us a little bit about you? Sure. Hi, everybody. My name is Tim Winnicky. I'm a licensed addictions counselor out in Golden, Colorado, which is a suburb of Denver. My background is, is I'm an Air Force veteran of five years. 
I've been doing advocacy work for mm, over a decade now and have been doing clinical mental health work for about three years now. And I've built out a private practice, uh, an education institute to help clinicians and the veteran and first responders communities join up so that we can serve some needs and actually get some work done. Great. And so this is uh, kind of a specific population that needs a lot of support. So let's kind of first kind of talk about what what is considered first responders anyway. Like, what does that mean? So the way that I and uh, the organization I work with, Responder Strong, defines it is anybody working to be in a situation to serve others immediately. So the ones you're probably thinking about are policemen and firefighters. We include EMS, ambulance folks, the dispatchers on the phone. And that's really important. And it's funny from my background, it, recognizing the trauma is overarching and how it impacts us is pretty big. And so I really, I really want to include all the support staff that are involved in that. They're on the phone, they hear the calls, they have the same access to moral injury, which uh, we can talk about a little later in the podcast if you want. But basically anybody involved in keeping us safe and healthy. Okay, so these are the people that are on the on the front lines, and they're the ones who are dealing with the intensity right off right off the bat. I would I would say so. Those are first responders, and and then you also said that you help veterans. Can you talk a little bit about that as well? Sure. So my draw is I am a veteran. I am a member of the VFW Post One. It's my community and I've gotten 20 years of advocacy experience. It wasn't until I joined the military and got out that as a white, cis, hetero guy, I found a community that I can fight for unequivocally and with passion. And that's the veteran community. That's how I can be of and for that community. Okay, and we're and today we're going to kind of talk about both, I guess, and and um, kind of look at that. So this is something that did this grow out of your own need for support, or what? What did you see, or how how, how did you get called to this? So I, I think it goes back uh, probably to my childhood, right? Most of us that work in mental health have a story. Yeah, definitely. Uh, <laughs> I'm a, a child coming from an addiction system. My mother has struggled with addiction her whole life. My father has struggled on and off his whole life. And so I, it was funny when I was doing my clinical studies and I read a book on systems of addiction and I looked at the firstborn kid and I was like, I don't like that I'm in a book. Right. <laughs> Damn, there I am. <laughs> like that's really uncomfortable. So when I look back, I got my first allyship award for helping build out a GLBT center on a campus at 21. So I've had this lifetime draw to serve others. And I think part of that was an unhealthy coping mechanism, right? Escaping my own stuff. But at the end of the day, 20 years later, it's really about a need to serve and purpose to be fulfilled. And the military really just honed that and gave it some legitimate meat. Right, right. So it really gave you purpose. And then so later as you got out, then what happened? And then how did you start to kind of see like, okay, I need to advocate for these these individuals who are struggling? Well, well, it's interesting. The focus on veteran mental health is consistently on the combat veteran. And for every single uniform member that's in contact in violence, there's nine people standing behind that person enabling to be there as safe as we can make them. 
Right. Okay. And I ran a peer support program for three years for the University of Colorado at Denver. And what I found was that if someone was a combat veteran with an honorable discharge, which meant they served honorably, they made it through their service, their trauma, their struggle, and they didn't break until they got out. I could get them resources in two hours. Denver has a great network. We've got a lot of nonprofits. I'm very, very happy with my city. But if you were a non-combat veteran, you know, let's say that you worked in supply or you worked in intelligence or you worked on computers, or you did any of the plethora of jobs that the military has and never saw combat, I couldn't get you help. And let's say even worse, let's say that you were a combat veteran, you went on however many deployments you went on, and then you came home and you got your second DUI because you drank to cope, and now you're out of the military with a dishonorable discharge, there's no resources for you. Wow. Yeah, so bad paper is a, a real struggle, and it's something that's just starting to be addressed nationally. But when I was doing my advocacy work, I saw that. And then consistently what I've seen in my clinical work is trauma as, as a blanket statement is something that we like to talk about as clinicians, right? It's kind of the new way that we want to view how people are hurt and how they cope. And what I find is most of my veterans, some of them are struggling with a traumatic response, right? Absolutely PTSD and traumatic brain injury are a thing that happens. But every veteran that I work with struggles with purpose, struggles with how to integrate back into a quote unquote normal life struggles with how to be there with their family and friends when they've been gone for at least four years, even if they never went overseas, right? You're not stationed near home most of the time. Right. So there is so kind of living outside of that, that system that I would imagine has a lot of structure, has a lot of purpose, is driven. Yeah. I mean, just for my story. So I served for five years. I was an intelligence analyst I did serve overseas, but I was never deployed. My joke is I was shot at in high school. I was never shot at in the military. Right. And I got back to Denver. I even was lucky enough to do my last year of service where I knew I was going to settle afterwards. So I really had one of the most gentle transitions that you can have. And when I got out, my plan fell apart and I sat around in a depression and drinking for six months just trying to figure out what to do next. One of the things that I think a lot of times we don't think about, and I certainly didn't when I was in, is that when you were in the military, you make almost no major life decisions. You don't get to pick where you go. If you're overseas, you don't get to pick who you spend time with. If you get married, you're making that decision usually on three to six months of acquaintance. Right. It's... You can choose how you react to the world, but you don't get to choose how you impact the world. And the operational pace is such that it's not like most people in the military have time to sit around and wax about the existential and figure out what they want out of life. So when we get out, all we know is one of two things. Either we know we don't want to be in the military anymore, or we know we can't be for whatever reason. Right. Now that makes a lot of sense. I, so I hear what you're saying in, in the sense that in this system, a lot of these purpose-driven decisions are, are kind of made for you. Mm-hmm. And then when you get out, it's kind of like, well, I don't, I don't know, where am I going? Yeah, I, I could understand how that would be kind of, could kind of lead you to that kind of depressive state. I don't know where I am. Where, where am I in the world? And 
and what do I fit? And when we were talking earlier before we started recording, you you had said something about the statistics around uh, military and and suicide. Can you can you kind of talk about that because I think that ties into this. Yeah. So there's there's two big stats that I think think are important. First is the 22 a day, right? That's the number that we know. And we've got a lot of preconceived notions about who those 22 a day are when we hear them. Okay. First off, half of them are elderly veterans. 11 of that 22 a day are people that are over 60 and either come to the end of their rope or dealing with trauma that's been unprocessed. These are usually like your Korean War and Vietnam veterans. And the Vietnam veterans were traumatized on levels that I can't relate to and I think is part of our country's greatest shame. So that's half of the new generation of veterans that are getting out. Half of those are not combat veterans. Right. Combat veterans, we tend to lose within two to three years of them getting out. So essentially, if they get out and they don't make that transition well. The non-combat veterans, that uh, can range out to about 10 years on average. And part of it is a lack of purpose. This is my, now, the lack of purpose is my theory, right? There's no, there's no real data behind that. But here's where I, the other piece of data that I like to correlate. So I think it was back in 2009, the Army's suicide rate for active duty soldiers doubled. Wow. And it scared them because they're human and that's a scary thing to have happen. So they immediately launched into a study to find out who they lost and who who they were. And everybody assumed that it was going to be the combat veterans, right? At this point in 2009, the army had been overburdened for a long time. They hadn't been able to limit their deployments to six months with a year of recovery, which is the current policy. We had people that were going on 18-month deployments back-to-back. Right, and that makes, I mean, that's just off off the cuff for me, that's what I would assume. That's what you hear all the time. Absolutely. Combat veterans, it's combat, post-traumatic stress, and you don't hear about this other side. Absolutely. And it's incredibly frustrating for me because post-traumatic stress is treatable. Right. Ninety over More than 90% of the people that go in for treatment for post-traumatic stress get better. And we have this image in our world that veterans just have it and they're going to have it forever. Right. Which is really hopeful. So, <laughs> Very hopeful, yeah. What they found, though was that over 90% of the people they lost were in the first two years of service and hadn't deployed, ever. Wow. What they found was the further you away you were from a middle-class, white, male, cis, hetero person, the more risk factors you had. Wow. So what I take from that is a lot of times... Those of us who join the service, yes, there's a desire to serve. There's the, you know, wanting to go be of service, right? That's certainly a draw. But I think almost anybody, when they really look at why they joined, they were running from something. And sometimes that's just boyhood, right? I'm 18 years old. This is one of the few ways I can prove I'm a man. Maybe it's a decision, right? That classics thing of, oh, you just couldn't do college. But for a lot of us, it's also just poverty trauma, etc. And what we know about trauma is that it's not whether you're a strong or a weak person, it's how much trauma are you holding. And yeah, different people have different amounts they can hold, but there's no single human being that can hold an infinite amount without having some kind of detrimental effect to them. Right. So we have these people who are coming into the military at half gas, right? They're already beaten up by the world in some way. 
The military was their escape. It was supposed to be the thing that solved their problem. And now there need to be uniform. And we, we talk about wearing the uniform, but part of the military is being uniform. Right. Right. We're all green. We're not, we are not a race. We are not a gender. We are an airman, soldier, marine, guardsman, whoever. And let's say something about that just doesn't fit them. Let's say that those people didn't have the experience they were hoping to. And eventually they run out of gas. And that's who they lost in uniform. Now, let's say they were strong enough to make it all the way through. They made it through their first enlistment. They know that the military isn't for them, but they got through it. And then they go home and they go back to the things that they were kind of hoping to leave. And in part, they think they're the same person and they've had this drastically different experience from everybody around them. The world has moved on without them. The things they knew before are true and not true in a very confusing way. And now they don't even have a purpose. There's a a great analogy about purpose in the military that I love. Some president in the past was touring an aircraft carrier. And aircraft carriers are large cities on water, right? There's over 3,000 people on them. And they run across somebody with a mail cart. And the president stops and says, hey, sailor, you know, tell me about your job. Well, sir, I have the most important job on this ship. And you see the kid with the mail card. All right, tell me more about that. And he's like, well, if I don't deliver this, the boat doesn't turn. If I don't deliver this, we don't get food. If I don't deliver this, we don't shoot that target. I have the most important job on this ship. The military is profoundly good at making people recognize how whatever job they're doing leads to the purpose of whatever the mission is. You don't really get that working at Home Depot. Yeah, no, that's true. And you can really see how someone who has that structure and that purpose and it's really there and then they come out back into this world. They're, in, like you said, kind of left behind because the world's moving on. And they made it through with all of maybe all their trauma they brought with them. And then here they are going, okay, what do I do? And I can see how a person would at that point turn to addiction as a way cope. Well, there's also just a significant drinking culture within the military. So the stat is 70% of all veterans at some point in their life struggled with alcohol. Right. So the work hard, play hard dynamic is real. The, I come back, like the classic story for somebody who deploys, right? They go to, they go to deploy for six months. That means their paycheck is just racking up in their bank account with combat pay, with all that money. And I can't tell you how many stories I have of people on their temporary leave in Germany on the way back below that entire paycheck in a week. Wow. Wow. So when you hear work hard, play hard out in the world, that like I feel like the military and oil riggers, right? Like they're the ones that are like... Right. <laughs> they're really doing it. But the other thing is, is that it's the... The substances are allowed, right? Hey, we don't talk about it, but let's go have a beer. Right, right. right. And the medicine in the military is, it is designed to get you back to work. It is not designed to make you better. So to give an example of that for sleep problems in the military, which is common, right? I worked intelligence, I worked shift work. So my normal schedule was to work a 16-hour day, three days, have three days off, and then show up for 16-hour nights for three nights. And my schedule would just rotate like that. Wow. 
Yeah, and that's that's common, right? If you're in the military and you're doing some job that supports worldwide efforts, it's a 24-hour job, so people got to be there. We also know, as mental health clinicians, as doctors, that that is one of the worst things you can do to somebody. Right, it's flip them like, back and forth, and wow, yeah, that you really never, messes with the brain. Yeah, you never you never hit REM. So then you go to medical and you say, hey, you walk up to the counter and there's a 22-year-old nurse with about six months of training. And you say, hey, uh, I can't sleep. I'd like to see a doc. And they say, yeah, uh, doc's not going to see you here for a while. Here's your stop and goes. And stop and goes are a mild narcotic and a mild stimulant that you take to sleep and you take to wake up. Wow. And that's just forever if you want it. Right. Okay. So it kind of, in a way, kind of starts to create uh, this culture or this way of dealing with problems by medicating them somehow. Absolutely. Either going, going, hey, we're not going to talk about what you just experienced today on your shift. We're going to go mm-hmm. have a beer about it. Or you can't, you know, you can't sleep. Here's a mild narcotic. Can't, mm-hmm. Let's not talk about it. Let's not figure it out. Let's just, uh, we'll just take care of it and let's move on. And to be fair to the medical professionals in the community, it's not that these people don't care. Right. It's that the mission comes first and you come fourth on your list. Right. It's the mission, the folks that you're serving with, your family, and then if you're lucky, maybe you. So then you then you come out into regular life, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And uh, what a difference. Well, I mean, addiction within the military is profound. Right. Right. As long as you are functional, right? What's what's the term? The functional alcoholic? Right. I come home and I drink four drinks when I get home, but I make it to work every day. Exactly. As long as you can do that, there's no problem. Right. Yeah. So then you get out, the medical apparatus you've been working in, You most of us agreed to it. We're like, well, just get us back to work. Our work is important. We need to get back. No, I don't have time to talk about this and unpack this. Just get me enough to get through the day. And it, it's actually interesting. That's where I started seeing the correlation with the first responders. Okay. So my veterans, we we work with it like, hey, that's not your life anymore. Right, right. Right. What's the life you're building now? Let's get you some skills and some knowledge on how to get through and get connected with the day you're living right now. For those first responders, it's, it's very similar. Get me back to work. Okay, I, I, I can't sleep. I've got these nightmares. Help me get back. Give me just enough to stay on the job. Right. Okay. So kind of like we got to keep going. The mission is the most important thing, whether it's in the military or first responders, which I would say is like, yeah, I mean, you're out saving people. Who has time for you if someone over there is hurting and we got to do something about it or we got a mission to com- to complete? Well, and the other thing with the first responder community that's what what got me involved in it is there's certainly a lack of resources and a lack of culture in the military and in the veteran community around what I would consider effective care for us. We have the vet VA. We have national organizations dedicated to fighting that fight. And no matter who you are as a veteran, you know that there's going to be places in any town you go to that you can walk in and people will try to help you. Right. There may or may not have the resources, but you know there's people that will try. The first responder community does not have anything like that. Right. So they're, they're even in some ways have less of a resource. Not in some ways, in every way that I can think of. Okay. They have no national org. 
Most of them do not have state orgs. In fact, most of them, the only way to go about getting care is through the workman's comp procedures. So essentially, they're stuck gaining resources the same way that a janitor who has a slip and fall accident goes through them. Right, right. Which is just not an appropriate level of intervention. And then culturally, they're about 20 years behind the veteran community on mental health. So back in the early 2000s, the veteran community got really lucky in that we had a bunch of World War II, Korea, and Vietnam veterans with their ribbon racks and their VFW hats show up on military bases to talk about trauma and mental health. And they're the ones that got us used to the idea that post-traumatic stress is a normal reaction to an abnormal situation. Right, right, yeah. And that is wonderful in a lot of ways. I, I feel like now we're on the other side of it trying to fight the idea that every veteran has to be struggling with PTSD as opposed to just anxiety, depression, transition, of ver- like as varied as there are service members' struggles. But the first responder community never had that. So I, the, the first responder clients I have come in secret. I've got a nonprofit that funds me seeing them. But if it gets back to their departments that they were seen by a mental health professional, nine times out of 10, they'll be pulled off the job and put on desk work because people don't trust them anymore. Yeah, I've, I've experienced the same thing in my work when people come to me for addiction treatment and they're in the first responder community. They are very, very wary. They don't want to use their insurance, so it gives it makes it more financially of a burden to get help, and they definitely want to keep it very, very quiet. But they really want help, and they need help. And um, yeah, that's that's something we gotta we gotta change in in our in our society and our culture around that because, and especially with the first responders, I don't know if it if it's as much recognized as what it's like to have the the trauma of be, showing up in the in those situations that are high intensity. Well, I, a large part of it is that and this is this is something I see in both the first responder community and the military and veteran communities. The my relation to it is our medal of honor winners. So, anytime you see a recipient of a medal of honor get up and do their speech if they survived, These are our country's greatest heroes. These are the people that we look to for examples of what bravery and self-sacrifice looks like. They all get up and they say the same thing. I didn't do anything that any of the people standing next to me wouldn't have done in the same situation, which is absolutely not true. It's the ideal. It's what we like to think, but there's a reason why they get the highest award. Right, right, yeah. But if those folks can't say, I'm deserving, what are the rest of us supposed to do? Yeah, no, totally. And then I, I struggled with this. So I, I have a 30% disability status for injuries to my knee and shoulder because I joined the military a decade late and was chasing 19-year-olds around a track for five years. Not the most exciting of injuries, right? But I need help with it. I broken out of the military and need care. It took me a year while I was working in advocacy for other veterans to finally put in my application. Because I knew people without limbs that weren't getting services. Right. No, that makes a lot of sense. So it's almost like you don't you don't deserve the care because I I can gut this out. Like somebody else needs it more. Yeah, someone else. And I've also noticed that in 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 uh, first responders and in some military veterans that I work with, they, they incredibly giving of themselves almost to an, a point of 
of injury in, in a way because there's always someone else who needs it more than me. And I don't, I don't know if it's I don't deserve it, but I don't, I can't take it because someone else needs it more. Yeah. And, um, and maybe I haven't earned it or, or maybe I'm not worthy of it in some, on some level. Yeah. Like I'm still here and standing up. So somebody else needs this more. Right. And I, I see that in the first responder community as well. Right. Somebody, the, the kind of classic thing is let's say that you're a new parent and you go on a child welfare call and you see a child hor- horribly hurt. But in your career, you've seen that before and you've seen worse. And you know people that are ahead of you that are 30 years in carrying 30 years of stories that aren't getting help and appear not to need it. What does it say about you that you have to go in? Well, we know that it means you're human, but for in that community, it, it's seen as weakness. I guess you just can't handle the job. And the other thing that I didn't know about first responders is how competitive it is to get a job. Right, yeah. So the average firefighter in Colorado doesn't get to start being a firefighter without, unless they have military service to add to their point score for consideration. Is a late 20s, early 30s. These are people with degrees. These are people that have jumped through any number of hoops to get that job. Right. So there's a lot of there's a lot at stake. And and like you said earlier, there's this stigma around mental health. If you're having any issues with life in general, some of these things, depression, anxiety just show up anyway, regardless of where we are. Mm-hmm. And uh, you yeah, don't reach out for help because if anybody finds out you, you're gonna lose your job or mm-hmm. or you're gonna be demoted or you're not gonna be promoted or well, and the the way that most first responder jobs go is you spend half your life with the people you work with. Right. Like most firefighters I know go in for 48 hours straight. So they're literally spending half their life with their crew and all of a sudden those people don't trust you. Yeah. They're like, yeah. Yeah. And that's 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 tough. So it's almost like there's no room to be uh, to be human in there. You gotta you gotta overperform. Mm-hmm. Well, and there's a fear response to it. And what's funny is the more, so now part of what I do is I've gone and taught like mindfulness to responders, right? Kind of the same things that, that we would teach in the family centers in the military. How do you change gears from work to home and work and home to work, right? How do you go from being angry sergeant to lovable dad, right? There's a different skill set there. If you try to teach your kids like you teach your troops, it's going to go poorly. Right. And doing like three minutes of mindful breathing in the car where you're just tracking what's going on, what what am I carrying from work now that I'm going home, what am I carrying from home now that I'm going to work, did I get sleep last night, did my kid keep me up, did me and my spouse fight? Right, yeah. Just those little things go a long way. Or just recognizing it's been a rough call. If you... Most of the calls that, for instance, the um, my primary people that I'm working with right now are firefighters. So the bulk of their calls are ambulance calls. It's an elderly person that's having heart palpitations. It's uh, somebody who doesn't feel well and is scared and calls them. And they end up being fairly innocuous a lot of the time, right? Like, oh, this person needs a little bit of help, but they're going to be okay. But you've got to be ready for when that's not the case. And you've got to be ready to gear up for like a full-blown fire or an emergency, a shooting, whatever. But going through and recognizing that you need a minute between some of those more intense calls. Right. With all of the the violence out in the world and the kind of microscope that 
I feel deservedly needs to be on our responder community. There was a call, there was a video of a young black woman at a pool, right? And you saw this big white cop grab this teenage black girl by the hair and put her on the ground and yell back at a crowd of people over a noise complaint at a pool, right? I think this was in Texas like two years ago. And then you see the video and there's all these cops kind of standing around stunned, trying to figure out what to do because they've got, they're supposed to support this guy, but they're clearly at a loss for what to do. Right. It turns out that that guy had just come off a suicide call. He had just tried to talk somebody down from suicide and watched them kill themselves. And then dispatch immediately sends him into a noise complaint at a pool with teenagers. Yeah. And I'm not saying that what that man did was appropriate. I'm not saying that the African-American and minority communities haven't been traumatized over and over and over by the authority in the world. But we have to recognize that we've got to come at this from both sides. Yeah. We, those communities deserve safety. They deserve home. They deserve community where they feel safe and heard. And if we want that, we have to have responders that are aware, taken care of, and trained. Right. And so really bringing in the mental health issue into the light so that people can, our first responders and our veterans can be prepared to be able to do what they need to do, but also not sacrifice their mental health at the same time. And uh, that's a challenge. Yeah, and there's a, there's a lot of good things happening in the world. Like I don't want to make it sound entirely hopeless. Colorado, it was funny. Boulder County in Colorado is basically like the Berkeley of Colorado, right? It's it's super screaming liberals where all the hippies in Colorado lived for a long time. And it's a great town. I love it there. And they started a thing where they started having mental health clinicians go out on calls with police for mental health calls. And when they proposed the idea, the police officers were initially very against it. And their reasoning was, is I don't want another civilian to track when I'm responsible to maintain safety for everybody around me. I don't need that. You're, you're making my job harder. Within a month of that program starting, they started requesting more and more of it. Can we get more of them? That was amazing. Oh my God, please, can we get more of them? I'm not a social worker. I'm a police officer. My job is to maintain safety. And you're basically making demands of me like I'm a social worker. Right. Right. I can't hold a weapon and maintain safety and be a social worker at the same time. That doesn't... It doesn't make sense. And it's exactly where we put them, right? So now Colorado has a program where multiple counties have picked up this program and it's gaining steam. And the other thing that I think is going to happen from that is you've got a clinician socially in a car or a vehicle with a responder. Right. So on all the ride-alongs I've done, uh, just to make sure that I'm familiar with the community, that I... I don't have to make them educate me about their world. I take the time to do that as a clinician serving them. I'm just a guy in a car with them. Right. We're not performing a therapy session while they're doing a traffic stop, which, by the way, is the most dangerous part of their day, it turns out, uh, because they never know what they're walking up to. But consistently, in the six hours that I'm in the car with them, at some point, they start asking questions. Oh, I got a friend. They saw something pretty bad, and you know they're, they're having trouble sleeping. What would you tell them to do? Right. So almost getting that uh, that resource in a different way, but also bringing mental health and mental health issues to the light so that people can work with it. So I, I have a question. When, when you're working with these um, first responders and uh, working with these veterans, I mean, wh- what's the commonality between them? And, and, and what, do you, what do you 
do like, uh, you know, kind of first off? I mean, how, how do you start to really help them? So immediately, I, I, I've listened to a number of your podcasts, and I think you'll agree that uh, DBT is a great modality. Right. Yeah, I love DBT. My, my favorite thing about it is, is that I'm kind of a dumb guy. Right? So anything that you can break down into less than two syllable words for an intervention, I'm all about. Right, right, right. <laughs> and the way that I explain DBT to my clients, it's like, if we learned everything we needed to know in kindergarten, you wouldn't be here. Right, yeah. So That's here's a good way all the stuff it. we should have learned in kindergarten, right? Okay. Uh, so I immediately start with that. You got to give them some immediate relief. How do you ground? Like, wh- how do I just turn down the volume on this just a little bit? Just give me an, just prove concept to me. So give them those emotion regulation skills right off the bat. Give them some immediate tools they can use to self-regulate a little bit better. Yeah, I, I see that so often with a lot of clinicians, right? There, there's kind of this, the idea of clinicians that there's this two camps. There's short-term therapy and then there's long-term therapy and the two shall never meet. Right. And I think we're starting to get away from that, but it's the biggest crock I've ever heard. When someone comes in really, really dysregulated and struggling, they're not ready to talk about their existential self and their life story. They need to figure out how to get through tomorrow. <laughs> they want relief. <laughs> right. Right, yeah. But then once they get relief in their space, now they're like, oh my God, what is this existential mess that is my life? Right, exactly. I, I, I kind of experience it the same way as well, especially working in the addiction field. Because with addiction, if you're having all these underlying issues and you're using addiction to cope, it creates so much, usually for a lot of people, creates a lot of chaos and unmanageability. And you've got to get that under control. And that's the first step. And then once that happens, then then you get to those life, those, those life questions. But let's just get you kind of stable here. Let's get yeah. you a little bit of relief so that you can function and uh, do what you need to do. And then and then maybe down the road we'll we'll, we'll start what I kind of say, start building their life that they they want what what is it you want and how do we do that strategically absolutely and the what i've found works really well with responders and veterans is a narrative approach to that how are you the protagonist in your own hero's journey right yeah right because everybody who served in a uniform at some point or another as a little kid had this idea of like being gi joe the hero yeah yeah right and that goes back and that goes deep so and when we watch like when we watch a really good action flick there's always a montage in there somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. Of just the hero's life sucking. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So this was your this was your montage. <laughs> Let's start walking. You got to walk through it. There's no other choice. Yeah. What, what yeah. do we do with it now? Yeah. What do we do? We're here. Yeah, uh, what do you my, want? My, yeah. What are we gonna do? Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. So, well, Timothy, I want to thank you for coming on and, and bringing this issue to light and, and talking about it and sharing a little bit of your story. I mean, I think that really when other people can hear that other people are going through this, they're not alone in this and that uh, they can reach out. I always think that's so helpful. So to anybody listening out there and maybe they're a first responder or maybe they're a veteran, maybe a non-combat veteran or a combat veteran, whatever, what would you want to tell them? What would you want to say to them we're not done with you just because your service is over doesn't mean that your family doesn't have a need for you it doesn't mean that you can't build a life that's going to be impactful and there's a lot of ways to do that wherever you are whatever state you're in whatever rural area city there's something to connect to all of this goes back to connection and purpose just get there and you'll be better 
Oh, that's that's great. So so reach out. Well, Tim, Timothy, if people want more information about you, how can they how can they get a hold of you? So my website is www.empoweredchangece, like Charlie Echo, dot com. And that has all the courses that I do, that has clinical resources, both for patients and clinicians. And I'll be doing a podcast here starting in the middle of July called Stories and Lessons, where I tell stories from my life and bring other male clinicians on to tell stories from there so we can continue to normalize some of these struggles. You can find that either out on my website or you can follow us on Facebook at empowered.change.ce and all the information will be there. Awesome. And you know what I'll do? I will also link the, all of that in the show notes and link your podcast as well. I'm really excited to, to start listening to it and to, to, to hear those stories. And, um, you know, I think we heal, heal a lot through stories. So once again, Timothy, thank you so much for coming on and coming on to The Addicted Mind. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for the opportunity, Wayne. You have a great day. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. All the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com forward slash 41. If you are enjoying the show, please go to iTunes and rate and review us. That really does help me out a lot and I really appreciate it. Also, I love to hear from you guys when you guys comment on the blog and ask questions or leave your thoughts about a particular episode. I love to hear what you guys are thinking. So please go do that as well if that fits for you. And um, until next week, have a wonderful day. It's easy to blame ourselves for our struggles with alcohol. We see people around us being able to control their drinking without any consequences, yet no matter what we try, we can't seem to figure it out for ourselves. My name is Jillian Teets, and I am the host of the Sober Powered Podcast, where I use my biochemistry background to explain the latest research in addiction and help you understand both why you drink the way you do and how to develop the skills and mindset you need to find freedom from alcohol. I discuss topics like why we think about our drinking 24-7, why we have no off switch, and why we crave alcohol. If you're struggling with your drinking or you know someone who is, then I hope that you will check out the Sober Powered Podcast. New episodes every Friday. See you there.